You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Welcome back to Campus Killings. We hope everyone enjoyed their holidays. Please stay tuned at the end of this episode for a little news we're excited to share with you. This episode brings us to Delaware College in Newark, Delaware, where a college prank would go to the extreme. Amy, today's episode is a little bit different because this is a historical case, and it's going to take place in the 1800s, and I don't think we've covered one this old yet. Yeah, so I just wanted to let you know that um, a little bit different. And also, much of the information for this episode came from the thesis, Murder at Delaware College, The Death of John Edward Roach by Richard Quick. So just two things to be aware of. John Edward Roach, born on July 17th, 1838, was the youngest son of William and Eliza Roach of Anna Messick, Maryland. Roach was greatly impacted by the early death of his father and grew up a bit of a, quote, mama's boy. He was proud of his lineage, despite his family being of modest means. Roach had entered Newark Academy in 1855. This was a preparatory academy that fed into Delaware College at the time. He was accepted into the college as a freshman on July 1st, 1856. John was a member of the Delta Phi Literary Society, a group that's much like and sounds much like a fraternity, but was committed to discussion and debate around contemporary issues. John was considered an average student, um, but he was respected by his classmates and professors for his industriousness and his sincerity. According to one report, John was described as having a, quote, native simplicity ardent enthusiasm, and scrupulous uprightness. Wow, that's a mouthful. On Tuesday morning, March 30th, the Delaware Gazette ran a public notice. There will be an exhibition by the junior and sophomore classes in the oratory of Delaware College Tuesday on this date. The time was inexplicably left out, but faculty minutes reflect the exhibition had a planned start time of 8 p.m., A meeting of the College Board of Trustees had also been advertised in the local papers. For some reason, the trustees meeting was noticed for 11 a.m., even though the college bylaws provided for noon. And it, in fact, started at noon on the 30th. So there's some oddities going here with why these times are either left out or incorrect. Let's have a little historic background here to help us understand the events that we're about to discuss, because in the beginning, you are about to correct me about the college, right? It's not Delaware College, right? That's correct. So what is now the University of Delaware was founded in 1743 by a Presbyterian minister as a homeschool in Chester, Pennsylvania. 
The school moved several times and ended up in Newark, Delaware, first as the Academy of Newark in 1969, then Newark College in 1834, and finally as Delaware College in 1843. Now, by 1858, which is the year our story today takes place, the college was in dire financial straits. In the 1850s, the college was not funded by any religious institution or by the government, and wealthy natives of Delaware generally sent their sons to schools out of state. So the Board of Trustees was meeting that same day as the exhibition, March 30th, which was the end of the spring term, to consider the school's finances going forward. I know that we also can relate to hearing a lot about, you know, schools' finances and planning and, and budgeting. And I was also going to remark that that's an early end for a semester, right? That is a very early end for a semester. Uh, we, you know, people yeah. always say that we end early in May, but, you know, the school year was probably different then. The exhibition was also, just so you know, a fundraising effort that took place twice a year. It was an evening of public rhetorical exercises and speeches. So how did this come about? Well, the tradition started in 1836, but it had since been written into the college bylaws, which set forth that the sophomore class performed in the fall and juniors took the spring exhibition. So this is interesting to me. So it's not meant for freshmen and it's not meant for seniors. So you have your two middle classes, your two, you know, Mm -hmm. in-between classes, Students would get up and recite a speech or an original writing, and the more dramatic and flowery, the better. This was meant to be a dramatic exercise. In 1858, as usual, the junior class took on the spring session, but the sophomores had been added on after concerns that there was an insufficient number of students in the junior class to handle this due to reduced enrollment. The reduced enrollment, Amy, was an indicator of the dire financial straits the college was in. Get this. Guess how many students there were. Back then, for like 100. Oh, you were not far off, Amy. There were 71 students in 1855, but only 39 in 1858. Oh, wow. Um, It's hard for me to even wrap my head around a college, an institution running. What does that mean? How many professors would there have been? And, you know, what was the curriculum like? Regardless, this was a small amount. And as you see, the number went down by, you know, at least 30%. So the spring exhibition was timed at the end of the term, a closing ceremony of sorts when students were feeling unburdened by their schoolwork. Quote, it served to gratify parents and friends while providing a pleasant, harmless affair for the student body. So I think this was kind of just a celebration. It was a time also, again, they were trying to raise money, but it's supposed to be a fun event. The exhibition had become a competition of sorts with one-upmanship involving decorations, musical prowess, and, like I said, flowery oratory attended to show off verbal skills and eloquence. What a different time. Oh, my goodness. I thought the same thing. You know, it's it, every time we do one of these episodes and it, there is a different time or a different college, I think, oh, my goodness, the way things, you know, are so vastly different from how we do it now. Mm-hmm. At this event, pianos were brought in and colorful banners and streamers hung I mean, this was really a big deal, and it attracted quite an audience because there was really not that much else to do in the evenings as well. The 1854 exhibition actually ended in a brawl between what one diarist called the town boys who showed up and a fight among them and the Delaware College kids ensued. 
The tradition of rivalry between classes was manifested in increasingly disrespectful and mocking faux programs. So, quote, the program handed out to the exhibition audience reflecting a fake schedule of events. This is where things get a little bit interesting. This from a 2021 Delaware Live article. Quote, it was common for rival classes to put out a spoof of the oratory's program literature designed to blatantly insult the speakers. While this started out as good, clean fun of late years, this tradition had degenerated into malicious abuse. The faculty decided to look the other way, and this was not stuff that would be considered risque these days, Amy. So I uh, just want to you know, preface this, which this is my attempt at uh, Latin, or this might be Pig Latin as well. So that year in 1858, the program handed out was titled Drovis Junorum Donkey Orum Etiorum Ape Pendage Orum Delavridisus Collegi. Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I'm kind of impressed that I even got that out. But this, there's no actual term, just so you know. This translates loosely, Amy, to a swarm of donkey juniors and their beekeepers at Delaware College. So, again, maybe not risque these days, but then that was quite insulting. And now a brief word from our sponsors. The program this year was the brainchild of a senior, Samuel Harrington, and it was a carefully executed plot that involved weeks of planning. Several weeks before the exhibition, when a student named Joseph Beale was transporting the real program to the printer in Philadelphia, along with a letter from junior John Roach ordering the print job, Harrington waylaid Beale and stole the real program. Having an advanced copy facilitated the escalation of faux program tradition. So it basically allowed the pranksters working with Harrington to use the list of speakers, credits, and subject matter and materials in the real program and lampoon it all very specifically and deliberately in the fake program. All right. So here's what happened. Harrington went to pick up the printed sham programs on March 29th. The sham program contained a number of humorous writings and what Quick calls incongruous woodcuts. So those are images designed to poke fun and demean the subjects. But Amy, this program seems specifically to make fun of the student named John Roach, citing a quote love letter he had written as the source of the faux program. The introduction contained a passage spoofing what would have happened when the members of the junior class discovered the switcheroo. It read, quote, Roach has gone mad. He will crawl about tonight like other roaches, seeking what he may devour. Now, that was aimed at him, but it poked fun at others, too, calling other people names like Allgas Higgins and Jackanapes Roop. But Roach took the brunt of it with two pages in the sham program dedicated to mocking him. Quote, you're right, ladies. It is the identical Johnny Roach, Maryland Hedgehog. It referenced him sucking rotten eggs in a Chesapeake hen roost. It referenced that he descended from the royal family of Maryland to whom, quote, 100,000 is a hot copper to millionaires. Uh, I have to tell you, this was, you know, it seemed that it was very targeted towards Edward Roach. They, they really chose to focus in on him. And you should understand that these are obviously old-timing insults. You know, some of them don't translate very well today. One of the other things that it said, quote, if he favors any of his ancestors, we judge they are cannibals on the paternal 
and orangutans on the maternal side. I mean, yeah, actually, even by today's standards, that would be you know, pretty mean-spirited, huh? It sounds poetic for insults, doesn't it? Well, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to go with the exhibition program, so you're right. Um, yeah, while it's mean, it's it's poetically done. In fact, Amy, it, you know, it, it does sound juvenile. There's a lot of misspellings and hyperbole, but that was actually pretty common for humor at the time. Quick in his writing points out that the taunt of Roach was especially unkind because Roach was on the sensitive side and he was known to be defensive of his familial line. Quick cites biographers of Roach asserting that he was, quote, particularly sensitive and easily touched by satire or sarcasm. And remember, Roach's father had died, so he only had his mother. And I think the insult to her heritage would sting really, like especially keenly. So in short, Edward Roach was not amused by any of this. He had a large role in the exhibition, and he took it quite seriously. Roach did not abide with these shenanigans, and he did not appreciate the attempts to undermine what he saw as a serious literary or oratorical endeavor. So Roach did not appreciate this, and a plan was formed ahead of time to steal these sham programs. Okay, how this happened? A bunch of students, allies of Roach, including his cousin Miles, set out to destroy these offensive pamphlets. A couple attempts were foiled, though, Amy. A plan to attack the ringleader, Harrington, at the train depot never came together. And a stakeout of his room number 24 on the third floor found Harrington refusing to go to breakfast because he did not want to leave, presumably, these pamphlets unattended. This is quite serious, actually. But finally, mm-hmm. on March 30th, Harrington had to eat. So he told fellow conspirator Joseph Beale to guard his room, located in the old college building, which was the only building on campus at the time. It housed student residence rooms, classrooms, and meeting rooms. This is a quote from Quick. Beale, being hungry and not at all certain of his ability to cope with an emergency assigned the uncomfortable job to George Hazel and went to dinner. That's so funny, Amy, that part, because I could see that happening to you. So the person who was supposed to guard the pamphlets didn't think he could basically skip dinner. Um, And I could see that being you. You know what? I'm going to need you to handle this, Megan, because I've got to eat. Yeah. All right. The raiding party attacked while the vast majority of the students were at the noon meal. Roach was either completely unaware of this or did not participate because he was a rule follower or he knew what was going on, but stayed out of it to lure the enemy into a false set of security. He was at the table at the noon meal with the other boys, which included Harrington. The raid party easily overpowered poor George Hazel and held him down while they attacked the lock on Harrington's door with a hatchet head and a small knife. Yes. Wow. They take this really seriously. I mean, these are serious instruments, but Amy, both of those instruments failed. So then a wire was used to pick the lock, which also failed. Hazel escaped and ran off to sound the alarm. So the attackers kicked in the door and entered the room. They found the programs in a trunk and took them all to burn them. This escalated pretty seriously, and it's just kind of starting. So George ran to the dining hall to alert Harrington and his cronies. And this was a half a mile from the old college building. I definitely would not have run that, but Roach, Harrington, and a student named Isaac Weaver, who had just been given notice that he was expelled for too many unexcused absences, ran to the dorms in the old college building. 
Meanwhile, the raid party tried various rooms in search of a wood stove. Isn't that so interesting? They shoved about one quarter of the pamphlets into the stove in the room of a raider named Higgins and another portion in the stove in the adjoining room, which was Roach's room. They poured igniting fluid atop the papers, set them alight, and barred the door with a trunk. Wow. The pro-program party was determined to get them back, though. There was chaos as they ran to the dorm. Roach was heading for Harrington's room where he thought his friends would be, but the pro-program group was on the prowl. One kid named Roop had a stick. The Weaver kid stopped in his own room and came out wielding a dagger. Several of the boys saw him with the short weapon referred to as a dirk. The crowd, including Weaver, broke down the door to Miles' room. That was one of the raiders. Remember I said he was Roach's cousin? Mm-hmm. And finding nothing, they moved on. They did the same with the doors of a kid named Freeman and then arrived at Higgins' door on the first floor. At a later trial, both Freeman and a boy named Clark recalled that Weaver had followed the crowd of yelling, pushing boys down to the main floor. Now, Roach arrived at the same place at the same time as the pro-program crowd, Higgins and his own room. They were all allowed entry by Frazier, who believed the programs were burned beyond salvage by this point, so they thought it was over. Harrington grabbed up and brandished a broken washstand leg from his room, but a kid named Smith took it and the stick from Roop and stood in the middle of the room, a stick in each hand, yelling, quote, We have the programs and you can't have them. Estimates at this time were that about 20 boys were involved in the fray in this room. Now, Edward Roach, meanwhile, tried to bar entry to the stove area to the pro programmers, but Harrington pushed him aside and reached into the stove to salvage the burning papers inside. He threw some toward his friends and shoved some in his pockets and blew on the fire to try to extinguish it. Roach reportedly attacked Harrington and tried to drag him away from the stove. Fraser broke the two boys apart, literally restraining them from going at each other. Hazel, who was bitter about being physically restrained outside Harrington's room earlier, then waylaid Fraser from behind and threw him on the bed. Miles noted that two feet inside the room, about four to six feet from Roach, was Weaver. He looked angry and overall like the others, but Miles said that he did not see a weapon there. Meanwhile, Roach was attacking Clark to try to take some programs back, and he then was in turn assailed by another student named Giles, who tried to punch him. Miles stepped between the two of them and absorbed the punch himself. During this fight, or scrap, Roop also got hit. Giles and Miles went at it until Giles lunged at Roach and swung at his nose. We're quoting here from Quick. The scene during those five to ten minutes was one of great confusion. Barely 15 feet square, the chamber was filled with the clamor of some 20 young men. To confound matters, the flaming program scattered across the floor had set fire to the carpet and to the contents of an overturned can of igniting fluid. Smoke soon filled the room and frightened boys ceased hostilities to beat the blaze with jackets or whatever came first to hand, end quote. So the boys largely abandoned the fight at this point because they were way more concerned about stomping out the flames and chucking the can of fluid out the window. But Amy, all of a sudden, Roach was in the middle of the room, bloody. Blood gushed from his neck above the collar. He tried to speak out, but he couldn't say anything but Mitch, or it appeared Mitch. 
to a boy named Mitchell who was staring at him. He then staggered out the door. Most boys in the room did not witness any of this amidst the confusion, though. Smith didn't see any of this, but as soon as he realized Roach was gone, he went to find him, being surprised that he had left. He followed a blood trail to the exterior doorway of the building. There, Roach was slumped with a pool of blood growing at his feet. Back in the room, Miles noticed blood on the floor. Smith ran back into the room and said, Boys, I'm afraid Roach is dying. The boys ran out and Guile said, quote, I did it, Johnny Roach, and I can do it again. But as soon as he saw all the blood that was coming from Roach's neck area, he said quickly, I did not do that. It's thought that he only meant that he punched him in the nose, so he didn't understand. Roop later testified that he had been catching his breath in the hallway when Roach staggered by him whispering, the damn fool has stabbed me or some damn fool has stabbed me. Roop ran off to find a doctor. Another student was also not sure what Roach had said. Roach was able to ask him simply to go find a doctor. Other students who glimpsed Roach bleeding at the time just assumed that he had a nosebleed from this punch. Now, meanwhile, the trustees meeting had commenced in the president's office just around the corner from Higgins' room. The board had gotten through one order of business, which was the allocation of $25 for a band to provide music for the exhibition evening. Just after noon, the board was interrupted by pounding feet, yelling, and general mayhem. It was disruptive enough that the school president, James Newland, stepped out to discipline the boys. When he returned, he was shaken and asked Dr. James Cooper to come with him. They found Roach lying just inside the door to the building, his clothing saturated in blood. The neck of his shirt showed a slash on the right side. His cravat or his necktie was missing. Dr. Cooper saw immediately that the boy was doomed. A one-inch diameter wound gaped open between his collarbone, shoulder, and neck. It was described by Quick as, quote, diagonal across the neck and a little downward. It was two inches deep and the jugular vein was severed. So you know what that means. Things are not looking good here. And a crowd started to gather as the word spread. Board members gathering around started asking the students what had happened and if they had seen anyone with a blade. A boy named Jones volunteered that he had seen Weaver with a knife. A group of the adults traipsed to Weaver's room. He was not there, but a lethal-looking 14-inch long-sheathed bowing hunting knife was found under a large trunk in his room. Unfortunately, the group unwittingly destroyed evidence with their next actions. A board member named Rathmel Wilson picked up the knife and tried to draw it out of the sheath. It was stuck, and he handed it to the board secretary, George Evans, to try. Now, Evans' hands were all bloody from futilely trying to assist Roach. Wilson took the knife back, wiped it clean, and then managed to draw the blade out with some force. The three saw nothing on the blade that they could definitely identify as blood, but they thought they saw a stain which could have been blood. They also noticed that the point had been turned slightly. A basin of dirty water was also found nearby, and... In it was, there was a towel with a red spot about an inch long, which might have been blood. A student named Evans was sent to fetch the magistrate. The rest of the men left the room after placing the knife back where they had found it, except for Wilson, who hid himself and spied in case Weaver returned. He soon arrived. Weaver filled a pitcher with water and left again. Wilson departed as well, leaving the knife. It was so the knife was unattended for the next hour while the decision was made to arrest Weaver and two others. So Weaver, as it turned out, had gone to bring the water to Edward Roach, who was almost deceased at this point. Dr. Cooper was doing his best to save Roach when Weaver showed up pitcher in hand and Martin Jones heard him say sorrowfully, 
Roach, are you dead? The next part is really a sign of the times, okay? Dr. Cooper administered some brandy to Roach, who seemed to revive temporarily, muttering, oh, God. Civil engineering professor Edward Porter started questioning Roach, saying things like, Mr. Roach, who did it? Sir, who did this? Porter repeated the question, and to this, Roach answered Harrington. And so Porter said, Harrington? And Roach weakly said, yes, Harrington did it. And he said, Mr. Roach, what did he do to you? And Roach responded, Harrington stabbed me. Porter asked him, can you forgive it? Roach said, no. Porter said, oh, oh, Mr. Roach, you must forgive it. Can't you do it? Roach said no. So this was Roach's final utterance as he died. Um, I suspect the forgiveness was a spiritual goal. Um, uh, you know, to go to one's grave with forgiveness in one's heart. Uh, remember, this was religious and the timing here. I think they are asking him like, this is your final act. And they, they knew he was that he wasn't going to make it based on the injuries. The time of his death was 1.30 p.m. Dr. Cooper had been working on him for over a half an hour by the time he passed. It certainly seems that if they thought to give him blood, he might have been saved Indeed, after the whole thing was over, Dr. Cooper was the subject of a public debate in the papers as to his competency. Um, Letters to the editor cited simple means by which Roach could have been saved and suggested that Cooper was a hack. This is particularly harsh, but possibly true. Cooper noted later that he had said aloud to others around him while, you know, ministering to Roach that the boy would not survive. This was important because it goes to a dying declaration, okay? They wasted no time when Justice of the Peace John Wan arrived. They took Roach's body into the oratory, the hall which had been decorated for the exhibition, ironically, and immediately undertook a coroner's inquest with 14 members of the public as jurors. This is a testament to the different times, right? They're starting an inquest right there. Constable George Benesol was sent to apprehend Weaver, who Quick says was, quote, by now fairly well indicted by hearsay. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Twenty-five witnesses to the day's events were called to answer questions before the jury. They told conflicting stories implicating several different boys, Amy, Harrington, Giles, and Weaver. Of course, Harrington was always represented as Roach's chief adversary in the, you know, the struggle for the programs, and the two were wrestling together just before the stabbing. And remember, Roach's dying declaration was that Harrington had done the deed himself. Other witnesses said that Giles had struck Roach. And it was said that Weaver, you know, had been seen brandishing a knife in the halls. So there were many different implications that possible parties were involved. Now, Robert Hutters, the village apothecary, testified that Weaver had breathlessly run into his shop and told him that Roach had his throat cut. And to please hurry to the college. So he gathered supplies and got to the scene. He arrived to find Dr. Cooper working on the bleeding boy. Weaver, just behind him, asked if he thought Roach would die. He said he doubted he would live. And Weaver responded, my God, can't you do something for him? And this this next part was really crucial because Hutters asked Weaver if he knew who had done it. And Weaver said he believed he had done it. So this was like an admission right here. He told Hutters the knife was in his room begged him to, you know, advise him what he would do. So Hutters felt guilty or sorry for Weaver and advised him to leave town on the next train. So the, he has just admitted that he thought he stabbed him and the advice that he gives, this adult gives him, is to get out of town. Weaver said he would depart immediately and wait in Elkton at the station for a telegram from Hutters informing him whether Roach made it or not. 
This was really not good. Another witness was very damning to Weaver. Um, Samuel Freeman, he was one of the kids involved, told the jury that he'd seen Weaver with, with the knife in hand and also standing at the bottom of the stairs just moments later. All right. Another witness was very damning to Weaver. Samuel Freeman told the jury that, quote, he had not only seen Weaver knife in hand start downstairs with the crowd, but while standing at the bottom of the stairs moments later, had seen Roach in distress and then beheld Weaver hurrying furtively back up the stairs, one hand concealed beneath his coat. Freeman alleged that as Weaver passed, he remarked in a confidential manner, don't say anything about it. So this is not looking good for Weaver. Someone was sent to get the knife from Weaver's room. It was found to have a pinhead-sized bright red spot on the hilt between the blade and the guard, and it was still wet. There was debate over whether this drop could have gotten on the knife when Evans handled it. Weaver, who had apparently not left yet, was questioned about the knife. He admitted that it was his and that he had grabbed it and waved it for effect, but he said that he dropped it when he entered Higgins' room and only picked it up again later to place it in his own room. The coroner's jury returned a verdict that was not particularly helpful. They ruled that, quote, Edward Roach came to his death by a Bowie knife in the hands of one of three following persons, J.H. Weaver, wrong initials, by the way, Samuel M. Harrington and T.B. Giles. The three were committed to the Newcastle jail pending bail hearings. Isn't it interesting how differently this was done, that there was a coroner's inquest right away and they're, you know, admitted they're arrested pending bail hearings. That part is true. But I thought the the spot, the questioning on the spot, uh, I didn't realize that happened. The three were committed and Roach's body was to be transported to Baltimore the next morning. His sister had come to Newark in order to attend the exhibition. She was leaving with his corpse now. Very sad. Some brothers of Roach's from the Delta Phi Society took it upon themselves to accompany his body on the train to Baltimore. As people gathered somberly that night and discussed the day's tragic events, the group started down the path of melodrama. They recalled that Roach had always envisioned a violent end to his short life. Someone said he had given away one of his possessions, saying that he wouldn't need it. The speech that he was to give that night was titled Departed Glory. So I think the rumor mill was, you know, the drama rumor mill was a buzz. Then the next morning, most of the school and many of the townsfolk turned out for the processional to the train station. After it was boarded onto the 10.30 a.m. train, most of the students packed up and went home for the two-week break between spring and summer terms. Quick's piece about the college states that at the time of the murder, it was almost inevitable that something like this would happen. The students were undisciplined and rowdy to the point of dangerousness. There were incidents cited of public drunkenness, gunshots within school grounds, with at least one student being shot and wounded, vandalism, theft, and destruction of property, and acts of gross immorality. Meanwhile, the tide of public opinion was against only one of the detainees. Samuel Harrington was the son of the college chancellor, who was formerly chief justice of the state of Delaware. The press attributed the blame placed on him basically to vague rumors. Another paper said that recent information teams seemed to establish the innocence of Harrington, you know, kind of downplaying any role he might have had. Chief Justice Gilpin was set to consider the case. He had taken over the bench from Samuel Harrington Sr. just the previous year. Um, April 5th was the start of the hearing that would determine who would stand trial and area residents attended in force. Court was convened at 11 a.m. and each of the three accused entered with his own counsel. Somewhere in the vicinity of 25 witnesses were called. In the end, Amy, evidence against Harrington and Giles was deemed insufficient to try them. 
So what this meant was that the case against Harrington and Giles was dismissed, but Weaver was bound over for trial. Now, why is this? Well, multiple boys had seen him running through the college halls with a knife in hand. He admitted that the Bowie knife was his. He acknowledged bringing it to Higgins' room. He was seen in the room where Roach was stabbed. It's also worth noting that other students reported seeing the knife in Weaver's hand during the time of the altercation. And finally, Hutters testified that Weaver had confessed his crime. Now, how strong do you think that would play a role, Amy, the confession at the time? Even though it was a while ago, I would imagine quite damning. I would imagine it's more damning so than even now, because now we know a lot more about false confessions. But a confession then would be very strong evidence. Mm -hmm. Judge Gilpin remanded Weaver to prison to await trial. He was sobbing and his father, Levi, in the courtroom as well, had tears in his eyes. Meanwhile, with the start of the new term two weeks later, the trustees wasted no time with a cover-your-ass measure, CYA measure, reminding all students of the no-weapons-on-campus policy and declaring that the board had no knowledge of any weapons that had been brought to school illicitly by the boys. It seemed they turned their heads on a lot. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. We want to take a moment to tell you a little bit about our friends over at CrimeCon. What is CrimeCon, you might ask? It's only the greatest convention in the world of true crime where thousands of people come together to discuss their favorite cases, rub elbows with some of the biggest stars in the world of true crime, and interact with some of their favorite podcasters. CrimeCon is a great place to meet people just like you who have an interest in true crime, and you get to hang out with some of the biggest names in true crime, people like Nancy Grace, Paul Holes, and Dr. Henry Lee, just to name a few. It's a three-day event, and the next one is less than a year away. CrimeCon 2023 will be in Orlando, Florida, at the World Center Marriott, September 22nd to September 24th, 2023. And listeners of Campus Killings can save 10% on your standard badges for CrimeCon 2023 when you use our promo code at checkout when you go to CrimeCon.com. That promo code is CampusKillings, all one word, no spaces. Book your trip now before spots sell out. And who knows, maybe we'll see you there in September. Weaver was arraigned on May 14th, where his counsel entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. The trial began on Monday, May 17th. The courthouse was packed so full, Amy, that the judge had to order a path cleared so Weaver could be brought in. This was a spectacle. And this was a time also when trials were spectacles. They were public spectacles. Attorney General George Fisher stated that the state was charging Weaver with first-degree murder, requiring malice afterthought, but the jury could also consider the lesser charge of manslaughter. I think this was a real reach. Don't you think, Amy, charging him with first-degree murder? Yeah, Megan, I don't see any evidence of premeditation at all, unless they have evidence we don't know about. Uh, no, 43 witnesses were called for the state, though, so this is a lot. Most of, most of their testimony was a repeat of the material at the preliminary hearing, which are, we already reviewed, but there were a few additional items. Specifically, a friend had visited Weaver in jail and testified that they discussed the case. And then, you know, he said that Weaver admitted to doing it, but not intentionally. Uh, he said that he was surprised to hear this. Um, and, you know, he said moments later, Weaver retracted the statement. But, you know, this was also considered, I guess, another confession of some sorts that, you know, he's admitting to doing it. Testimony was offered that there was also bad blood between Weaver and Roach. Um, so this was, you know, somewhat newer information. Mitchell testified that he didn't see Weaver in the room at all. 
Miles testified to the same. And despite others' testimony, both said that Weaver and Roach were friendly as fellow members of the society and had no beefs between them. So this was, you know, testimony on the side of Weaver and not against him. Weaver's attorney, David Paul Brown, produced character witnesses for Weaver, who generally testified that he traveled in low company. He had never been in significant trouble before. Basically, that he just wasn't a bad kid. Quick states that the prosecution had some insurmountable obstacles to a conviction. First of all, the biggest one was the utterance by Edward Roach that Harrington had been the one who stabbed him. He said it a couple of times. It wasn't just once. Second was the inability of the state to show that the Bowie knife owned by Weaver was actually even the murder weapon. They couldn't say for sure. No one ever saw Weaver stab Roach or even being within six feet of him. Only one boy even recalled seeing Weaver in Higgins' room where the stabbing occurred. Weaver adamantly denied stabbing Roach. And Dr. Cooper determined that the stab had been inflicted in a downward stroke. Now, Roach was a tall boy, but Weaver was a mere five feet tall. So the evidence was not that strong against him. The jury got the case around 11 a.m. on the third day of trial. What do you think their verdict would be, Amy? Not guilty. They returned with a verdict at 12.50 of not guilty. Just so you know, that's one hour and 50 minutes. Uh, Quick reports that the verdict was overwhelmingly supported by the spectators and that there was such a ruckus celebration in the courtroom that Sheriff Ogle had to restore order. There were hearty cheers for the jury. Yet the court's verdict seemed to come as a shock to many of Newark's citizens who believed that had it had been given without thorough consideration of all the facts. The Baltimore Sun wrote that the public opinion on the verdict was divided. Uh, Weaver was released to his father and returned to Baltimore. He remained expelled from the college. Remember, he was the one who was expelled for absenteeism. A public meeting was held and about 90 members of the citizenry issued resolutions declaring that Giles and Harrington were not to blame and Roach could not have known who stabbed him. It's not clear why no one believed that Harrington had been the culprit. I think, remember, his father was a judge and a chancellor and there was just Yeah, I was going to say, that's why. Strong influence. Meanwhile, the murder of John Roach was pretty much the death knell for Delaware College. Quick reports that in January 1859, the Board of Trustees resolved to close down the school due to lack of funds. It reopened in 1870 and since 1921 has been the University of Delaware. Today, ghost tours of the University of Delaware campus focus in part on the 1834 old college building where Roach died, which was the only school building for 58 years. Legend had it that another student died in that same spot, a member of the Choctaw Nation who came to campus on an exchange program and fell down the steps of the old college in the very spot where Roach later died and cracked his skull. And this from a mysterious America website article by Michael Clean. The Academy building at 105 East Main Street replaced a colonial era structure in 1841 and was originally part of Newark Academy. Appropriately, this building is rumored to be home to the college's oldest legend. It concerns a young man who attended Academy of Newark during the Revolutionary War. He snuck off to join Continental Forces and attended a training camp nearby. His father didn't approve, so he marched to camp and dragged his son home. Humiliated, his son hung himself in the cupola. Of course, if true, the incident happened in the original building and not the 1841 replacement. As for the old college building where Roach died, Clean says construction workers renovating the old college reportedly heard unexplained sounds and saw shadowy figures stalking the empty corridors. There are other haunting stories, Amy, and, um, you know, paranormal stories. There's, you know, the flickering lights, the unexplained footsteps. 
the typical kind of rumors that tend to haunt a crime scene like this, especially a historical one. Part of the lore of this case stems from the fact that years later, Isaac Weaver was killed in a factory explosion in Baltimore. A boiler reportedly exploded and a flying piece of shrapnel cut his throat. Isn't that the irony? According to legend, his wound looked eerily similar to the one inflicted by someone on John Edward Roach. Many believe that Weaver was guilty and Weaver's death was either karma or John Edward Roach exacting revenge from the afterlife. We tried to find any primary sources about Weaver's death that might relate the actual facts of the event. But believe it or not, there were so many deaths from boiler explosions, Amy, in the 1850 to 1900 era that victims were not always reported by name. So we cannot verify the truth of the story, but it has been reported in many articles about the murder of John Edward Roach. There is one remaining original copy of the sham program produced by Harrington and his crew. It's located in the University of Delaware archives. Someone wrote an inscription decades ago about John Roach. First libeled, then killed. And that is really the end of today's story. And while there's a historical aspect of this one and not necessarily a take home for today, there are a couple lessons to be learned here. First of all, I think that the stakeholders learned that there had to be some rules and restrictions. They couldn't turn their head the other way. And I I think that carries over to modern day with some colleges, right? There's a takeaway. It also shows that mob mentality that we see in other crimes where, you know, once one person starts, a a group follows in violent activity. Yes, I thought that exactly when I read that. So I think the cautionary tale today is to be careful of that type of mob mentality. And, you know, of course, never to let a prank go too far. We mentioned at the very beginning of this episode that we wanted to share some news with you. And here it is. Campus Killings has its own brand new website. If you go to campuskillings.com, you'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that we can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails for us. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media and a lot more. So it's really your one-stop shop for everything Campus Killings. So we hope you'll check it out. We'll see you back here soon with an all-new episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.